redundant to tell you at this point that uh, to get your Bibles and turn it to Romans. We are continuing in our series in Romans, and we will continue to be in Romans for some time. And so, uh, just as a, all joking aside, I had someone tell me this week, and she was just giving me a hard time, and she said, are we still in Romans this week, Kevin? And I said, yes, we're still in Romans. And the thing is, if I skip any verses, everyone's going to like criticize me, like, well, Kevin, why didn't you preach on that? So we're going to have to kind of look at it all, but, but we're finishing up our section on Romans 9 through 11. Uh, we'll finish that up in the next one to two weeks, and then we'll have a, a, a one to two week break, and then we will kind of go back to the very beginning of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and we will kind of begin going through Romans 1 through 8 at that point. And so I have uh, some breaks built in into the summer, so we're not going to be in Romans through the entirety of the year. But I, I truly, truly, uh, I hope in this time that as we have been able to, to, to go slowly through a book in God's Word, that, that it, it speaks to us. And for those who may be a little bit behind, you can go onto Facebook. Our, our sermons are now also on our, on our website that you can go and you can keep catch up in that manner as well. As Kristen, as you were sharing those powerful words earlier, it, it brought up an image also into my mind that so often we think that the world has just gone hell in a handbasket. I mean, it's just, it's just a hard place. And sometimes we can also feel that in our own lives, that, that we have dry bones and that we don't experience and feel the Spirit of God in our lives. We can sometimes even think about that in our own communities, even here in Eastland, that sometimes it may look and appear that it's just dry bones, that there's no life here. And here lately I've been convicted of the, the thought that's so easy that it's to just retreat, to just think about spiritual things. But you see, that's not what God calls us to. God has not given up on the world, and because God has not given up on the world, we too cannot give up on the world. That in fact, that we are then to, to go through the power of the Spirit, that these dead bones come to life again. And that it's through His church that He renews things. So I shared last week that it's God who is the one who sustains and renews His church. And what would it look like for a church to be renewed, for a movement of the Spirit? For individual lives to be transformed by the Spirit of God. To then see a community transformed by the Spirit of God. But it starts with us. And you see, and that's what Paul's point is in this passage today. That he, that God, has not given up on the world. That God has not given up on the world. And even though it may seem... That God is absent. He is in fact at work. He is in fact the one who is holding back great evil upon the world. That he is at work through his people and his church. If you see Romans 9 through 11, just to kind of refresh in your memory, Romans 9 was this question, why has Israel rejected God? Why have they rejected the gospel? They're going down a path, they veered to the right, and Paul veered to the left. 
Paul is saying God has not forsaken them. He's still faithful to his promises. It's just this is the way that God has chosen to bring forth his plan of salvation to the world. Then Romans 10, a beautiful chapter that speaks to the only way to know Christ is through the cross and his resurrection. That there's no other path to salvation to God outside of Christ Jesus. And then in Romans 11, he's circling back to show once again that God has not rejected his people. That he's kept a remnant. That God has worked through their past. He is working in their present. And that one day in Israel's future, all of Israel will be saved. And you can imagine Paul's dismay. His struggle. Perhaps at times it seems that if God had given up on the world, but he has these words of hope for us. He has these words of hope. Just as Susan was reading in verse 7, he asked this question, what then? Has God forsaken Israel? That's what he just talked about. Then Paul says, by no means. He hasn't forsaken them then what's to become of them? What's to become of Israel? And you see, chapter 11, as I mentioned last week, is, is, is about Israel. But there are things that we can see, these theological truths out of this chapter that speak to us. So here Paul is saying, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. Just as we've seen throughout Israel's history, God has chosen some and not others. But that their own choosing was not for themselves, but it was meant to be a blessing. Even within the story of Israel, there were some who were chosen. God chose Jacob and not Esau, and he's speaking of nations at this point. Here Paul is trying to articulate how the gospel is at work, and to give this answer why some have rejected the gospel, why some of his fellow brothers and sisters who are Jewish have rejected the gospel. Verse 11, he says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And he says, by no means. Rather, it was through, and you may want to circle this, their trespasses. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make, you want to circle this one too, Israel jealous. Now if their trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And you can circle that last one, their full inclusion. You see what Paul is articulating in these verses here. He's talking about their trespasses, Israel's jealousy, and their hope of their full inclusion. So what's he saying at this point? He's talking about three stages to Israel's response to the gospel. That in fact, God did have a plan for Israel all along. That this wasn't surprising to God. That he is sovereign. He knows all things. And it was, in fact, part of his plan from the very beginning. Israel's response 
open the door for, their, for the Gentiles. It was their trespasses, their rejection. Because of Israel's rejection now, the gospel went out to the Gentiles. And we see this in the book of Acts. Not all of Israel rejected the gospel. There were many who did believe. But there were some who rejected the gospel. And we see the accounts where Paul, when he would go out to cities, where would he always go first? He would go to the synagogues. Every time in every city where Paul went, he went first to the synagogue to preach to the Jews. And often it was in those places that his message was received in kind of a mixed way. Some would believe, but many would not believe. Some were even hostile to Paul. It was, in fact, what led the first Jewish believers to leave Jerusalem. It was persecution from their fellow Jews that caused them to leave Jerusalem and then to go where next? To Antioch. And from there, they continued to spread out to take the gospel further. And then all of a sudden, at some point, the gospel goes to Gentiles. Can you imagine what would have happened had Israel not rejected the gospel? Can you imagine? Think about it for a moment. What if all of Israel would have believed at that point? Would have they had any need to take the gospel to Gentiles? Could have it possibly affirmed a, a wayward theology that they were chosen for themselves and not to be a blessing to all nations? Would have they forsaken what God had promised Abraham? We don't know, but I could imagine that the gospel may have not have gone to Gentiles as quickly. But within a couple generations... And Gentiles are coming to the gospel and responding to the gospel because of Israel's rejection, their trespass. And we see the second stage in this process of Israel's response to the gospel. The Gentile belief, it makes Israel jealous. Israel becomes jealous. And we have to understand kind of what this jealousy means. It's this jealousy that now Gentiles are welcomed before God as they were welcomed before God. Experiencing all the benefits and the promises that were originally given to Israel. There's a story in scripture that speaks of this jealousy. It's in fact several, but one in particular. It's the story of the prodigal son and the elder brother and the father. The son leaves the younger son and spends everything his father's inheritance, all that he'd been given. And he comes back and the father welcomes him. Something that would have been uncustomary for a father to do at that point and in that culture. And where's the older brother in this entire picture? In the first part, he's out working, doing everything right. And then all of a sudden he hears about his younger brother coming back and his father welcoming him back in and putting a robe upon him, killing a fattened calf. And the elder brother is, is what? He's filled with jealousy. 
I've been faithful to you, and what have you done, given to me? And his father tells him, everything I had was at your expense, but you didn't take it. You could have enjoyed all of this stuff, but come in and enjoy, be a part of the celebration of what I've done with your younger brother. But he refused to accept the grace of his father. And you see, at this point, Israel is jealous because of the work God is doing among the Gentiles. They were jealous. And now, in verse 12, it says, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? See, Paul doesn't spell out what it means for that all of Israel will be saved, as he alludes to in verse 26. He doesn't say how or when it will talk about, but Paul holds out hope that because the working of the gospel, of how God has chosen to bring about the gospel, that Israel's rejection has then gone to the Gentiles, and because the Gentiles have it, it will then in turn return back to Israel. Paul likely has in mind there not individuals, but a corporate body, a great many number. We're not entirely sure what all of it means. But Paul holds out hope that there will be a full inclusion of Jews. Their trespasses, Israel's jealousy, and their full inclusion. You see, God hasn't failed at keeping his promises. In fact, God had a plan from the very beginning to bring Gentiles into the fold. Bringing Gentiles in the fold through one man, Abraham, and then Christ Jesus. And this plan is not complete, but will continue to expand throughout the entire world, culminating with the full inclusion of Israel. A hopeful picture that Paul paints. But I think what we see in this text today, of this inner working of the gospel, and we make it ask questions, but why did God choose to do it that way? I don't know. This is a mystery of God that we don't fully understand, that he is in control. It's his prerogative to choose and to work, and he has told us how he has worked in the world that culminates in Christ Jesus. Paul sees this working of how the gospel has come about. It's God's plan of salvation history. But there's three things that I think that I see in this passage that shows that God has not given up on the world. You see, throughout this, Paul maintained a love for those who were lost. He loved Israel. It burdened him. He, he agonized and would gladly give himself up if it meant others would believe. He knew that he had a part to play in God's plan of salvation history. And he trusted, ultimately, that God would do what God said he would do, that Israel would not be forsaken. You see, we need a constant hope for those who are lost. 
verse 12, it has this phrase, how much more will their full inclusion be? In verse 9, 3, he said he would be cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. In 10, 1, he says, my heart's desire in prayer to God is for them that they might be saved. Here was a man who was the apostle, not to the Jews, but to Gentiles, and yet his love for his fellow brothers and sisters who did not know Christ continued. He had a love and a hope for those who were lost. Convicting words to see how Paul never gave up. Can you imagine going to synagogues and constantly seeing people that you have this truth and they go there and they, they run you out of town, they beat you, and maybe just a few believe, but the vast majority of them don't. Paul constantly has to run from his own kinsmen. William Carey was the father of kind of the modern missionary movement in the 18th century. And what he saw among some as a lack of a desire to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They were having a conversation, one out at their church, and there was an older gentleman who said this to him. He says, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God plans to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. But for William Carey, that wasn't a good enough answer. That upon reading scripture, he believed that we are called to go to the ends of, to the, ends of the earth for those who are lost. And so William Carey answered the call to, to go. And if you don't know the life of William Carey, it's one of filled with great hope, but also great tragedy. He lived 41 years in the country of India. You know that it, in the first seven years that he was there, he only had one convert. He lost his son when he was five to dysentery. His wife suffered from mental health and disability. He was there for 41 years and only had 700 people come to know the Lord. But what William Carey did, he also translated the Bible into countless languages and dialects in the nation of India. He often also then influenced a generation of people after him to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He is known for saying, expect great things and attempt great things. You see, there is in Paul a constant hope for those who were lost. It's easy for us to give up, isn't it? To give up on those who are lost. I know I do that. And yes, there's a point when, Jesus says we don't cast pearls before swine. Those who are hostile or reject the gospel want no part of it. But there is still, I think, even within Paul and for all of us to have a hope that God will do something that only he can do to pray for them. As John Knox once said, a Protestant performer in the nation of Scotland, give me Scotland or I die. Do we have that same passion 
for those who are lost. I don't know if I do all the time. But have this passion of Paul, a constant hope for those who are lost. It's a challenging thing. But Paul was able to have this hope for those who were lost because he knew his part to play. And that's my second point, church. Playing your part within God's kingdom and the body of Christ. You see, in verse 13, Paul knew he was an apostle to the Gentiles. He wasn't an apostle to the Jews, but he was called, set aside to go to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God had been making it grow. Paul knew his part to play. Paul understood that. And if you're a follower of Christ, you have a part to play too. Do you have a part to play within God's kingdom where God has placed you with all your gifts and your abilities He has you exactly where he wants you to carry forth his plan for the world. You see, there's this idea that Martin Luther in the Reformation, he he challenged this idea of vocation that was kind of that to be called, to be set apart was only for the clergy. And he said, no, that's not the case, that everyone has been set apart. Everyone who believes in Jesus is called. They are all set apart to do great things. You see, it's not the work you do, but the way you do your work as a disciple. It's not the work you do, but the way you do your work as a faithful disciple. As Martin Luther King said, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep, sweep streets like Price sings before the Metropolitan Opera. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. You see, we all have a part to play in God's kingdom. Whether you're retired, whether you're in high school or middle school, we all have a part to play. But so often, I think we miss that part. We mistake just small opportunities and little ways for us to be a part of what God is already doing. Yes, God is the one who saves people, who draws himself to people, But what does Paul say? I planted the seed and Apollos watered it. So there's work for us to do, is there not, church? We all have work to do. And I was reminded of that this past Wednesday. I'm kind of a confessional preacher at times, and I think I need to confess that this. Wednesdays can be exhausting. If you help with Wednesdays, we're in the middle of May and, or April, it's not even May, that's what it feels like. I don't know how you teachers do it. I mean, it's it's exhausting. I mean, it's nonstop all the time. And all of a sudden, Wednesday, it's like Sundays. It comes all the time. And thank goodness we get a break during the summer after VBS. But, but here's the thing. 
as I was getting ready, I'm probably one of the worst of volunteers that Betsy has because I have other things going on. I do the wreck, and I'm great with fourth and fifth graders and second and third graders. They're fun too, but kinder and first grader, I struggle with them because I don't, I don't always know what games to play. We've tried games, and it, it just is very, very challenging. But I realized this past week that I haven't been giving it the attention that I need. That my attitude wasn't that great because, you know, it's something that I have to do. And, and I enjoy it. I talk to the kids and give them a hard time. But this past week, there was a boy who was here for the very first time. He didn't ride the bus, but he rode his bike here. And that's just a miracle in and of itself. That a little boy, a fourth grader, somehow found out about our first kid's after school program. And he showed up. And he's sitting there talking, and I asked him what his name was, and he told me his name, and we're playing kickball, and we're doing some other stuff. And as we're there, and I'm talking to him, and I'm like, man, did you have a good time? And he's like, man, this was the best day I've had in a long time. And I'm sitting there just like, 45 minutes beforehand, gosh, I got to go to do this. I got to go to recreation right now. Can I not come up with some other excuse to not have to go do this? And here was this fourth grader who rode his bike to church, who went to a missions class, and then he came to me and did wreck. And it was the best day that he'd had. And we we're walking back, and I didn't know that he'd rode his bike at this point. And I was like, well, hey, you know, how do you need to go? And he's like, well, I rode my bike here. I was like, who, who, who rides their bike here? And so we got him a form so he could ride the bus hopefully next week. But it hit me. Here I am being so selfish in what I want to do, or I need to do this, or I need to do that. And here's this little boy who'd never been before, probably never been to church, and I have a part to play in that. So I texted Betsy and apologized that I'm not the best volunteer and that I'm going to do better. But I was reminded in that moment that I have a part to play. That we all have a part to play. And that there are days, and I know there will be a time again where I'm frustrated and I don't want to show up and I don't want to do wreck. Teachers, you probably understand that as Monday approaches tomorrow. But there is work to be done. There is work to be done. And you see what allows us to play our part in God's kingdom and in the body of Christ brings us to this third point that Paul realized. That we have to be willing to die for the sake of the world. We have to be willing to die for the sake of the world. You see, Paul did all that he did so that what does it say in verse 14? To save some of them. That Paul endured the synagogues and being rejected. He endured the beatings, the betrayals, being run out of town so that some of them might be saved. He understood the heart of the gospel. And at the heart of the gospel is the reconciliation of the world. 
and that through Christ Jesus, who reconciled the world to himself. And then we are then to be reconciled with one another. Paul understood that the ministry of reconciliation belongs to Christ. And because we belong to Christ, we are then to carry forth the ministry of reconciliation. But we have to be willing to die for the world. And that's playing our part. I don't know if Paul thought that he would be martyred for his faith. But I'm sure he knew it was a possibility because he writes these words in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul understood suffering. He had a theology of suffering, that following Jesus was just not all sunshine and rainbows. In fact, as Joni Tata says in her devotional, the cross is the center of our relationship with Jesus. The cross is where we die. We go there daily. It isn't easy. Normally, we will follow Christ anywhere to a party, as it were, where he changes water into wine, unless you're Baptist. Just making sure y'all are listening, still awake out there. To a sunlit beach, where he preaches from a boat. But to the cross, we dig in our heels. When suffering forces us to our knees at the foot of Calvary, we die to ourselves. And we cannot kneel there for long without releasing our pride and anger unclasping our dreams and desires. It's at the cross where we have to be willing to die to ourselves, to be willing to be used by God in any way that he sees fit, to be a jar of clay. A jar of clay could also be broken open, its contents given to someone else. But we have these treasures and jars of clay to show that the surpassing of power belongs to God and not to us. When we are willing to go to the cross on a daily basis, to die to ourselves, to, to give up all that we want so that God can use us as he sees fit to show the world his power. Amazing things can happen. And thankfully, God can still work in us and through us. And we don't see that. A reminder that God is at work even when we may not be at work. You see, 
Have you given up hope to those you know who don't know Christ? Have you forgotten this day your part and role to play in God's kingdom? Or are you refusing to die at the foot of the cross? Because you see, God wants to use you in powerful ways. He wants to use all of us. He wants to use his church here in Eastland in powerful ways. For us to all be opened up to be jars of clay. That it's God working through us for the sake of the world. Because he hasn't given up on us yet. And neither should you. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this time. That we ask, Lord, that you speak to our hearts. That you lay on our hearts someone who may be lost to, to strike back up those conversations, to reach back out, to commit to praying for them. God, for also knowing our part to play in the world. Knowing our part in your kingdom. If someone here today doesn't know that, Father, may they see that they have a part to play, no matter how great or small, that there is a part for them here in this body. Father, may we die at the foot of the cross. May you crucify all of our sinful desires, that you take us and you transform us into who you want us to be. May we know that it is trusting in you and you alone. May you show us your love in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite everyone to stand as we